Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and rolling deep with me today are my road dogs, Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. And rock expert, David Stubbs. How do you do? Boys, come and sit by the fire and hit a brother off, if you will, <laughs> with the pop things and the interesting things. Come on. Oh, a few things. I mean, not particularly pop. I was in a car crash. That was fun. No. Um, oh, yes. Oh. Got rear shunted. <laughs> no oh, innuendo intended. Um, at speed. But it kind of worked in my favour, although I should probably have fabricated some whiplash and got some oh, compo. Mate. But no, wrote off my car. I split it right down the middle. But um, really? it was on its last legs, to be fair. And the value that the insurance company gave me back has enabled me to buy another car. Ooh. Luckily, with a CD player in it, because without a CD player in it, my daughter wouldn't have accepted it. I really didn't get on with the courtesy car and all its iPad-y, Oaks cable, <laughs> you know, uh, stuff. So, yeah, I like old-fashioned cars with CD players in it. So that mm. happened. Also, I was a TV host for a weekend. What? Well, sort of. Um, a festival happened in Coventry a few weeks ago. What, another one? Oh, yes. They can't get it's enough of their festivals. Stop festivals <laughs> around your way, Neil. It's a shitty of culture, isn't it? So, um, course, yes. yeah, we had a Deliophonic Festival at, uh, in the magnificent Coventry Cathedral. Um, a celebration of the, the life and work of Delia Derbyshire, um, radiophonic composer. And um, they, for some reason, wanted me to host the live stream and kind of do interviews and be a bit of a oh. telly person for a bit. Did they say, come on, where are you? Let's have the, that's the wrong dealer, isn't it? <laughs> wrong dealer. Wrong dealer. But I was bricking it, man. Absolutely bricking it. Oh, yeah. The first thing they wanted me to do was a and a with Caroline Katz, who's directed a brilliant film that's on, on BBC iPlayer called Delia Derbyshire Myths and Legends, oh. um, which I, I kind of got ready for. And then a uh, late breaking kind of, you know, the Q&A is about to happen. Turns out Brian Hodgson from the original radio workshop and the guy who made the sound that the TARDIS makes um, had been picked up from Cov Station just to come and watch the film. And in the car, he'd been saying, oh, I'm a bit nervous about the Q&A. And he's 85 years old. You're not going to tell a guy like that, no, you can't do it. So they let him on and he was fucking fantastic. Was it? Um, the memories he had. 
of Brian Jones being at the Radiophonic Workshop and his work with Dealey and of making the TARDIS noise. He was fucking wonderful. Um, It's hard doing Q&As, isn't it? It is. I did one a while back with uh, some bloke. He's a right thick cunt in the end. What was he? (laughs) I had to carry the whole thing. What was his name again? Oh, oh, David Stubbs. (laughs) Oh, oh, that idiot. (laughs) No, it's hard, though. It is hard. You know, you're trying to do a conversation. Mm. But it's the, the fakest conversation ever. It, yeah. yeah. It kind of rolled. It kind of worked. The inevitable happened when I threw it open to the audience, uh, if they had any questions. It was basically a lot of very spotty blokes who didn't really have questions. They just sort of wanted to make statements mm. about what they'd mm. just seen. Yeah. But it was okay. And the whole weekend, I mean, it ill behoves me to have any civic pride, really. But honestly, on the Saturday night, I'm there hosting the telly bits. And I noticed somebody walking past me who's unmistakable. It's Joey Dam. From the specials, he's a bit of a hero of mine, and I've never really met him. And he's got a DJ set, an amazing DJ set that he does later. Mm. It was one of those things where my, my sort of my body did something before my brain said no. I, I saw him, and I just stood up and said, "Hi, Jerry." Wow. And I had nothing else to say to him apart from that. But he was he was beautifully polite. So you didn't say hello, Jerry Dummers. <laughs> no, no I didn't. Trick this man. <laughs> but it was a bit it was a bit mad because I think it was a lot of old cough faces after two years of the pandemic. It was a slight sense of them sort of reconvening. So I take a stroll down a cathedral aisle to have a piss um, in the cathedral toilets, and there's Jerry with Linval Good Lord. and Horace just having a photo together. It was mental. Um, so I doubt Terry would have got involved with anything like that. But yeah, it was it was a lovely, lovely weekend of kind of a, a vague sense of civic pride. And I can't have done that badly because they've asked me to do something else. So who knows? Um, I might be a talking head cunt on a BBC4 documentary sometime soon. Great stuff. Yeah, you need to be, Neil. Yeah, but I'm Melody Maker. They, they only ask enemy people to do that kind of thing. But yeah. cool. I mean, it's, it's good because I quit my teaching job a little bit. So doing this yes. media Pop stuff... School. You're quite right. Flipping school. Too bloody right. Um, so doing a bit of media stuff and reminding myself that I can do this shit. You know, it was, um, yeah. it was a, it, it's been a nice few weeks, really. Oh, lovely. David, mm. been a while, mate. How you been? Well, you know, I've been rocking away and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You, you, you're talking about, um, yeah, Q&A's things. I mean, yeah, I've done a, quite a few of those in my time. And, uh, yeah, and it's, sometimes you feel like a bit of a kind of, you know, it can be a bit invidious, especially if the um, person you're interviewing sort of tries to take the piss out of you and make out you being this kind of pretentious music journalist. Oh, dear old Jackie Liebitz, so I was a bit like that when I did him. Was he now? You know? <laughs> yeah, so I was. I had to play the... F- the full guy mm. to the whole thing, you know, with my yeah. highfalutin ideas about can, and he goes, oh, we just turned up and played. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, of Who was the biggest cunt you've ever had to do a Q&A with? There's a, there's a question. I haven't really done that many, you know. Yeah. I mean, the weirdest person I ever interviewed, uh, I guess, was Ginger Baker, the late Ginger Ooh. Baker out of Cream. That was just dreadful. <laughs> I thought I'd be like, oh, Who's this? I thought I'd been patched through to an old people's home by the state. You know, it's just like, I was doing it for the quietus. They do this thing, Baker's Dozen. Mm. Oh, yes. And, you know, and I was almost, you know, I had to talk of fashion, you know, because it's called Baker's Dozen. And I think mm. he took it literally because it's meant to be like <laughs> the tracks that have inspired you. Um, throughout your life, you know, the groups, the artists, et cetera, et cetera, everything he chose was by himself or involved himself. You know, he thought he was literally Ginger Baker's dozen. And everybody was crap. Jimmy Hendrix was crap. Yeah, was yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah. It was all, yeah. everyone's crap except me. It's just like monotones and lengthy silences and tedious. <laughs> and it was, oh, it was just, he's just an absolute, the cunt to end all cunts, really, <laughs> he was. 
<laughs> definitely. But um, yeah, it's funny. Neil, uh, yeah, Neil was talking about doing things, you know, audiences, sex, etc. I did a little thing recently just for some students um, mm. who were studying some sort of music and media type course and it was just i was just there as the great david stubbs and um, <laughs> with the kids exactly yeah they'd each prepared a question for me and it was very nice and, and, and the strangest one was one of them asked me you know they knew that i'd written a book about Jimi hendrix and then said you know if you had a chance to interview Jimi hendrix um, now what would you ask him mm. and i oh man i froze <laughs> i don't know i've been thinking about it ever since mm. he's the greatest rock star of all time he made the greatest album of all time as far as i'm concerned mm. electric ladyland and i had nothing i'd be as we like um, Neil in front of Jerry Danners <laughs> to say hi Jimmy well, obviously David you just said that Ginger Baker reckons you're a right <laughs> why don't you go <laughs> off and panning that is a really difficult question to answer mm. because I mean especially with an artist that passed yeah. I think the natural habit would be to say you know what do you think of Spotify Jimmy or, or what do you think yeah. of something contemporary no. you know um, that yeah. would be the only thing Where that comes to mind. Where do you get your ideas yeah do you practice to get that good I mean it's just <laughs> <laughs> the thing is what I kind of said rather pompously was, look, Jimi Hendrix just answered all of the questions I had and questions that I didn't even dream mm. of in during his life and work, you know. Yeah. And that's a total cop-out, isn't it, David? <laughs> all shat my way through that one, definitely. <laughs> Good lad. Um, the best Q&A I ever did, uh, Chris mm. Needham. Oh, I bet. Oh, I yeah, bet. of course. Yeah, it was on absolute mm-hmm. form. It was a joy. Worst Q&A I did was Chris Needham again a few months oh, later. <laughs> and the reason for that was um, someone had given him a crate of booze. Mm. Ah. That was tough going, that was. <laughs> Interviewing Marky e. Smith when he's absolutely pissed at 1.30 in the afternoon over the phone. That was, Yeah, that was the last time I did Marky e. Smith, and it wasn't great. Yeah, definitely. it's always tricky if somebody's getting... I mean, especially yeah. if they're getting pissed during the interview. Well, yeah. When I did Sean Ryder, I remember, um, when he was living at the Marylebone Hotel in London as uh, Black Great Years, I think. And he, he ordered a pint and then he sent someone out to get Xanax for him. Mm. Oh, dear. He, he must have necked about a dozen and then knocked them back with the pint. And yeah, the interview deteriorated quite rapidly after that. I got 10 minutes of gold and about an hour of doggerel. Oh. When I interviewed Sean Ryder, I was pissed. I mean, I'd been waiting for him for six hours in the hotel <laughs> lobby and like, playing it back. Oh, I mean, it's excruciating enough at the best of times listening yeah. to yourself <laughs> in interviews, oh, but listening God, to yeah. yourself like, when, you, when you've got about 10 or 11 pints inside you. Oh, <laughs> fucking, what do you think of this whole fucking business? <laughs> fucking, I just got such a fucking business, you know, in this business is fucking, ah, oh, it's dreadful. <laughs> Well, the only bit of pop and interesting business I have to impart to the pop crazy youngsters is that uh, Al Taylor uh, went out on loan to the Cacophony Sessions podcast for a for a very intensive blather about Neil Young, which is uh, mm-hmm. something he probably won't get to do on chart music. So, you know, that, that's good. So, yeah. you know, if you're missing him like the desert misses the rain, go and fling a tab <laughs> at that when you're done with us. The Cacophony Sessions podcast, everyone. I've been on that as well, yeah. Very good. Very, oh, very, have you? Very knowledgeable chaps, yeah. yeah. So this is what goes on behind my back. <laughs> so we've come to the part of the episode where we stop, we drop, and we bow the knee to the pop craze Patreons who've joined us this month. And this month in the $5 section are such names as Alistair Bain, Johnny Cabbage, Mickey Beats, Liam Devereaux, Denise King, Ash Preston. 
Adrian Armstrong, Joe Greaves, Chris Durbin, Ewan Wallace, Tim Ward, Don Whiskerando, Ian Sullivan, Christian Backerjord, Matt Taylor, Ashu Rye, and the return of the person who chooses to call himself Leicester is better than Nottingham. Oh, man. <laughs> there wasn't the other month, was there? <laughs> oh yeah, David. Yeah, Arsenal lost to Forest in the FA Cup, didn't they? God, that was a that was a long time ago. I think they kind of threw the game. To be honest, it's uh, you know focus on the Premier League, really young yeah. team. But uh, I do you know. I think Forest. I, I, I enjoyed watching them this season. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty handy stuff. I hope they uh, get back in the old top flight. Oh, you patronising cunt! Fuck off! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in the three dollar section, <laughs> I'm sorry, David, that was harsh. I'll keep it in, but that was harsh. <laughs> and yeah, fuck off, Simon. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Oh yeah. man, I was just no. hoping that Forrester beat Liverpool, and then mm. the FA would rig the whole FA Cup and get Coventry in for the semi final. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd have fucking oh, dominion man. over all of you. <laughs> and in the three dollar section, we have Stuart King, Elaine Hutton. Jimble72 and John Lekesne. Oh, and Gareth Price and Gareth Hawker, they whacked it right up this week. Bless their hearts and their cotton socks. We love you. Superlative. Mm. And as well as doing their bit from keeping chart music from starving this month, the Pop Craze Patreons have been breaking out the Judy Zook satin tour jackets and rigging the latest chart music top ten. Oh, let's have it. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Do you like it? Do you like it like this? Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to Singleton Notes, Purvis and Judd, the popular orange vegetable, staircase of cock, skin heady header, and rock expert oh, David no. Stubb! It is bogus! <laughs> Which means none up. Three down, two non-movers, four new entries and one re-entry. This week's number ten is a re-entry for Jeff Sex. First new entry in at number nine, this year's most lovable bisexual. (laughs) Last week's number seven, this week's number eight. Here comes Chisholm. Yes! It's a five-place drop from number two to number seven for Crosby, Stills, Nash and Glitter. (laughs) And a former number one drops from number four to number six, the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Into the top five and it's no change for Bummer Dog. New entry at number four for That Dog's Dead Now. <laughs> Into the top three, and it's another new entry the Mary Brennell Boys murder. <laughs> the highest new entry crashes into the charts at number two this week Sugar Blokes, <laughs> which means. Britain's number one. They're still there. The chart music number one, right at the top. Two Ronnies, one. What a chance! What a chance! Some exciting new entries. Mm. This year's most lovable bisexual, high energy, I reckon. Yeah, Yeah. 
I always think it's something a bit more twee, to be honest, and ultimately rather annoying once oh, really? you've been amused by the name. Yeah. <laughs> we already know that the Mary Brownell boys murder are uh, acoustic field recordings in a Welsh shopping centre. <laughs> when, when are we going to get to hear that? You know he's got a tape. Oh, of course he has. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he threw up on social media the, the poster for a gig. Yeah, and if you've got that, you've got a tape, man. You've got a t- fucking exactly. Come on, Price, you know you've got it. You know we want it. <laughs> <laughs> that dog's dead now. What what oh. are they laying down? <laughs> oh, I think they'd be Italian avant-garde, similar Do you to yeah. Not my my cat is an alien. Yeah, they'd be a kind of they tour together. And sugar blokes, you know, goes without saying, really, isn't it? It's, it's us <laughs> <laughs> in spangly hot pants, yeah. bra tops, the twenty first century Baron Knights. <laughs> so, if you want to stick your oar in on the chart music top ten, as well as getting episodes of chart music in full without adverts before everyone else, as well as supporting an independent artisan bespoke creative community, <laughs> shake that sexy little arse of yawn over to the keyboard, tap out patreon.com slash chart music, press that like button and pledge allegiance to the chart music crusade. Come on, you want it. I do like your use of the word artisanal there. You're quite right. This, this, it feels handcrafted, doesn't it, this show? No, oh, it is. Definitely handcrafted. <laughs> it's always weird, though, when people talk about handmade. What else is it going to be? Foot made? I mean, unless yeah. you're treading grapes, it's pretty much everything's handmade. Yeah, especially when they talk about food, handcrafted burgers. Yeah, and, uh, yeah that sounds fucking horrible. <laughs> sounds yeah. like you've got some poor lad getting his hand in a big fucking frying pan and blistering himself. <laughs> no one wants to eat that shit. <laughs> so, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to July the 8th, 1982. And oh, can you hear that? That's me rubbing my cakey little hands together with absolute glee because, oh, boys, we always have a good time on the 1982 episodes, don't oh, we? Oh, we do, yeah. 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 And, and this episode's no exception. Mm. 82. Oh, it's a lovely grab bag of bollocks, isn't it? It is, most definitely. Everything good and bad about the Yellow Hurl era is in play in this episode. Mm. There's a bit of cat shit, but... You know, you've got to have a bit of cat shit with your good stuff, haven't you? I mean, there's always got to be the sublime and the ridiculous. And, you mm. know, you can't have one without the other. And, and in certain cases, we get both in one go. Yeah. Mm. We'll have this argument as the episode unfolds, but um, I'm already uh, somewhat disagreeing with this a little bit of cat shit idea. <laughs> I think there's plenty of well, cat yeah, shit. Yeah, okay, right, a big wad of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is some fucking horrible shit on this, but the good outweighs the mm. bad, yeah, I yeah, feel. Yeah, I think so. Mm. And it's a very strange time, 1982, particularly if you're British, because, you know, we're a month removed from the Falklands War wrapping mm. up, and uh, it's become very clear that Margaret Thatcher isn't going to be the one-term prime minister we were hoping and expecting her to mm-hmm. be. Yeah, The fleet has only just returned last week, waving banners that read, call off the rail strike or we'll send an airstrike. <sighs> mm-hmm. uh, Lady Di's just discharge phase one of her duties by dropping an air to the throne and you know essentially the uk is going round thinking it's summit at the moment aren't they yeah 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. We can perhaps blame one of the artists that we see later on in this episode for this uh, f- spirit of national optimism. In a sense. But having said that, this episode that we're going to cover, it reveals quite a lot of things, doesn't it? It's the first tumblings of pebbles and silt of the American cultural landslide that's about to smash into us and, yeah. and define the rest of the 80s. And we're pretty much going to witness the coming out party of a lot of elements of the 80s that's going to dominate the decade and um, most of them if not all of them are American yeah and enabled by our public broadcaster which is, which is the odd thing yeah. I wonder if what accelerated that I mean obviously American popular culture has all, you know, always had a significant impact on British culture and Hollywood etc etc mm. and in the 70s America felt very very other yeah and I think by this point it, it, it's feeling rather less so ever since the war you know we've been fascinated by american culture but you know and we took some of the elements on but even in the 50s you know we're rock and roll and everything there wasn't many people in america who were dressed up like ted's mm. you know what i mean we, we could still adopt americanisms and tailor them to our own style but by the 80s yeah. instead of just absorbing american stuff we wanted to live like americans and act like americans mm. we became shaking americans mm. if you will yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing is it's also coming to us on all fronts so you've yeah. got music doing that you've also got film Absolutely. doing that a fuck yeah. of a lot and that tie up with music and film doing that quite a lot and also you've got prime time british television doing that yes. and i don't mean british television i mean what the british networks are putting on television mm. so on sort of these three different fronts which pretty much when you're a kid in particular this is the only access to culture you have yes you know on all those fronts america is absolutely battering down the door Mm -hmm. yes we supposedly have these british invasion bands in place like duran and things like that yeah and that is sort of happening that yields dividends later on in the decade but yeah yeah, everything so american at the time and it's 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 the time of the a-team and the dukes of hazard and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. those shows you could say were always with us but never as the prominence that they have in 1982 no i mean you were talking about film and influence et effectively reinvents halloween in this country you know because you've got those halloween scenes really before that it was just sort of mischief night and like you know knocking on doors and Mm -hmm. running away and all that you know but uh Yeah. yeah I hate Halloween. <laughs> it's not very pricey, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, yeah, <laughs> absolute bollocks. It's like you know, it's, it's it's not so much the marmite of like you know annual festivities. It's the shit in a jar. Yes. Of annual festivities. <laughs> anyway, fuck that. Let's move on forward. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week, 
Roy Jenkins has become the new leader of the SDP after beating Dr David Owen by 5,000 votes in a leadership election. Aslev have begun a train strike that lasts for two weeks. Terry Higgins, a Hansard reporter at the House of Commons and part-time nightclub DJ, dies of an AIDS-related illness in London, one of the first in the UK to do so. Michael Fagan is about to break into Buckingham Palace in an attempt to have a chat with the Queen and gets as far as her bedroom before being arrested. Paul Raymond has announced that he's planning to publish a surreptitious photo of a full-fronted naked celebrity while they were rehearsing for the play they're currently in. It's Billy Connolly. Connolly, who kicked off at Raymond after he published a topless photo of his girlfriend Pamela Stevenson, will be featuring in a forthcoming issue of Club International. (laughs) Jimmy Connors and Martina Navratilova have just won the singles championship at Wimbledon. 27 Barry Manilow fans have forked out £250 between them for a guided tour of the room in the Metropole Hotel in Birmingham, where he stayed the night during his tour of Britain earlier this year. I expect they will want to lie on his bed and crawl all over it, said the (laughs) hotel manager. They must see his room as some sort of a shrine. (laughs) But the big news this week is World Cup, World Cup, World Cup, World Cup! We're in the final week of Espana 82. Northern Ireland have had a good sing on the coach after being knocked out by France. We're three days past from England failing to get into the semis and being knocked out without losing a game and Italy beating Brazil 3-2 in an all-time classic. Mm. And today is semi-final day. Oh, what a time to be alive, pop crazy youngsters. It was. What a World Cup that was. It was a great World Cup. It was one of the last World Cups to be kind of absolutely soaked in air horns as well, you know, the proper sound of foreign football, which have now, you know, obviously they've completely disappeared. It was also the last time that Brazil were actually proper Brazil, weren't they? Oh, God, Zico, Socrates. I mean, oh, man. I was such a fanboy, such a fanboy. Yeah. Yeah. That day, the, the Monday, when Brazil got knocked out, in the evening England got knocked out, and I know for a fact that I was more upset about not yeah. seeing Brazil anymore yeah. than yeah. it was I about like England. That. But what yeah. a game they got knocked out in. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Spoiled, man. What a feast of football. Yeah. No, I, I was devastated by it. It just felt like the kind of, the, you know, the, the death of a certain kind of panache and flamboyance yeah, yeah, in the game yeah. and who gives a shit about defending, you know. Mm. Yeah. Just briefly going back mm. to that Michael Fagan business with the Queen, it just said so much mm. about this sycophantic bollocks that, you know, that, that, that drowned the, the royal family, anything to do with them. I remember there were reports at the time that, you know, he got into her room and he'd, it was about 20 minutes before anybody had managed to kind of come in and, you know, apprehend him and arrest him and all that. And during that time, the mm. Queen had been very calm and spoken to him in a way that was like not likely yes. to excite him or you know like you know that was very measured and calm throughout this is all nonsense apparently she just screamed yeah. get out get out get out but you know lord no. forbid you know that, that was just a perfectly natural response is what any of you know but oh yeah definitely. but you know they yeah. had to sort of confect this story about you know how sort of queenly and magisterial and calm she was in the situation <laughs> just complete nonsense the 82 world cup i mean although i was cognizant of the 78 world cup the 82 one was the first one where yeah I fully got I could watch it basically I could watch it all none mm. of it was on too late and and 
Mm. I completely. I mean, beyond the Figarini Panini, I had the you know the Falcon three hundred and fifty piece jigsaw of the England squad um, in their lovely Admiral kit. Was Ken Bailey in it? He might have been. I no. The the thing I mainly remember about that jigsaw is is the unpleasant tightness of Kevin Keegan's shorts on the front row. Um, (laughs) I think I was so disgusted by it, I threw that piece away. (laughs) But yeah, no, massively, massively. That was a brilliant World Cup. That. But mm. the first one that I, yes, could, I, I felt like I could fully watch all of it, including the amazing Sammy. Yes. It was just a wonderful, so many moments, Tardelli yeah. and the rest. Mm. The only thing I didn't like about it was the slightly daft format of it, you know, which did mean that, you know, like England could go out and having not lost a game, you know. Oh, that was good though, man. We, we left with our heads held oh, high. Yeah. yeah. If Keegan had held his head a bit high when he put that bloody yeah. head in, we wouldn't be having this conversation. On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Captain Sensible and Dolly Mixture. On the cover of Smash Hits, The Associates. The number one LP in the UK at the moment is The Lexicon of Love by ABC. And over in America, the number one single is Don't You Want Me by The Human League. And the number one LP is Asia by Asia. So, boys, what were we doing in July of 1982? Right, well, um, I... I just completed my first year at uh, university. Um, uh, my mum worked at the job centre in Leeds, and she was always able to blag me some really, really sort of good jobs. So in July of 1982, mm-hmm. I would have just started a temporary job as a, as a pharmacy storekeeper at the Leeds General Infirmary. Oh! And the weird thing was, Jimmy Savile was working as a sort of voluntary porter at that, oh, time. No. at that time. I never came across him, but technically, I would have outranked him. You were still alive, David, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, yeah, and, you know, I, I didn't actually come across him, unfortunately. I do remember that what was weird is, every week, there'd be a consignment of heroin that was brought in from the pharmacy, you know, for the addicts Ooh. and stuff like that. And you think They'd be like mega security, but no, just somebody just dumped it a loading bay. Lord. I went across one of those wheelie things and put it behind the counter. And that was the end of it. You know, it was extraordinary. Oh, I mean, I could have just made off. You could have. There and there, yeah. you know, sort of bought my own little island. But, um, you know, I was, too, I was too scrupulous and Catholic a boy to count, and a coward as well, to countenance any of that. So, uh, Jesus. I'm really kind of into the whole spirit of 82, you know, the whole sort of popism, you know, mm. Associates, ABC, Scritti Politti, mm. all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of, it's all sort of marinated in the sort of, in, in the rhetoric and the prose generated by NME at the time by people like Paul Morley and Ian Penn and it just feels like we're on the cusp of some sort of breakthrough some sort of epiphany is about to occur mm. um, you know all of which sounds pretty grand I think actually I would have struck probably myself if I were to look back and outsiders as a pretty insufferable little man um, <laughs> at that point um, a, a bit of a ponce to be honest um, you know I was um, I, I, I was uh, going to that their university uh, well yeah I mean it was that I remember actually going to the boat race that year and sort of dressing up a bit and I think me and my little gang no, David, I know I know no. but we're all a little bit full of like sort of bride's head and all that yeah, kind yeah. of thing and straw yeah, boats yeah, yeah. and the video to like the look of love and all that kind of stuff and dressed you know I, I remember wearing this pair of bright blue sort of zoot trousers with red braces mm-hmm. and a shirt and I remember oh, no. getting the train back to Oxford from London and like we were sitting there, and um, and then this, you know, this, this local wedding woman goes, "Ooh, ooh, ooh, dear, ooh, ooh," <laughs> in a sort of very sarky, snarky, ooh, Mister Lardy Dar Bertie Woofter here sort of thing. And I remember just Lardy sort of Dar like David Stubbs, me and my lip curling with contempt at this like, lump and prowl. <laughs> I said, "You know, you should have horse whipped." Don't, yeah, don't you read the enemy? Don't you realise that these trousers are bursting with semiotic significance? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, yeah, a little bit insufferable perhaps at the time. I was nine going on ten, and I was moving house, and also in a sense moving social class, I think. Because I was living in Ernstford Grange, which is a very working class neighbourhood of Coventry, and I moved to where I'm sat right now, quite a posh area. Right. Um, and you just immediately start noticing differences. No mm. kids on the street, no games, no Kirby, no corner shop. Um, and, oh. and, you know, I, I moved to this street, which oddly enough, I'm not... A cultural desert. Well, quite. I'm now looking at the for sale sign, which I have out in front of my house because I'm putting it on the market. Because um, oh, um, I've had enough. No, no, it's not I've had enough. I've been here 40 years in a way, on and off. Um, but, yeah, I, I moved to this house then. And, yeah, I, I just sort of, like, I went from a life of, like, a lot of kids in the street to, yeah, no kids in the street. And if there were kids, they were sort of rarely glimpsed. They were almost, like, in a Victorian sense, you know. Uh, barely seen yeah. and kind of you know I mean I, I, I we'd had like friends who were middle class before and the way their parents treated them was really weird and I think I think those were the kids that I was surrounded with because we had somebody who lived near us before and that that they had the kind of parents who had a lock for the television what? Yeah, their, their TV was in a cabinet and it was locked. And if the kids wanted to oh, watch no, it... no, like the ones you used to get on Sale of the Century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you wanted to watch it, they had to ask their, their parents and they weren't allowed to watch Grange Hill and <laughs> <laughs> all this sort of mm. stuff. And even though I couldn't actually see any kids in this new street that I moved to, I suspected they were all like that and they were just being kept under lock and key to a certain extent by their parents. Jesus. And it, it changed my life because I inevitably, you know, stopped living that street life to paraphrase Roxy and started living that bedroom life really you know when you there's no kids to play with out in the street you sort of retreat inward so I think that starts mm. happening for, for, from this age onwards well I'm 14 and, and like you I'm absolutely frothing at the gash about the World Cup mm-hmm. the other big thing that happened recently was I'd, I'd just come back from my first day trip to that there London mm-hmm. in order to spunk my birthday money up the wall on trying to look like Paul Weller so I am now the proud owner of a white Lonsdale sweatshirt Ooh. from the official shop in Beak Street and I've seen that of course with a, a Dennis the Menace and Nasha badge <laughs> yeah. like a Paul Weller had in, in Smash Hits and I got a load of Carnaby Street Rammel including two jam tour jumpers and uh, I, yeah I'm teaming them with some dog tooth check trousers so I'm wearing the shit out of them yeah yeah and I, I do believe this is also the time that taken on the uh, Steve Marriott triangle Toblerone uh, hairstyle that Paul Weller was rocking at the time so yeah I am I am mini Weller at the moment you're looking the part London absolutely did my head in I, I mm. got to St Pancras at about half past seven in the morning yeah yeah uh, I needed a shit, so I went into the toilets, and I ended up in a cubicle, and was just horrified by the fucking filth on the walls, man. <laughs> the entire cubicle was covered in graffiti about, you know, if you stand uh, on this platform at this time with the evening standard under this arm, um, mm. I'll let you bum me. And, and all sorts <laughs> and I'm just absolutely fucking terrified yeah yeah it, I was in there for about 10 minutes deciding well shall I just go back on the train oh, bless. before something happens and then finally I looked down for some bog roll <laughs> and right next to me are a pair of shoes and on top of that was a pair of trousers and on top of that was a pair of someone's pants and on top of that was a rolled up tie and I just absolutely shot myself, thinking, what the fuck has happened in this cubicle? <laughs> I nicked the tie, though, and put it in my bag, because it was a nice one, so... Oh, nice. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sin City, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit weird yeah, to think yeah. of the future employee of Mr Desmond yes. gathering up his petticoats at the obscene graffiti <laughs> on the wall, toilet wall. Well, man, I was, I was an innocent lad at the time. Yeah. Mm. And then later on, I got the flip side of, of London. I'm looking for a shop in Chalk Farm because this was the time when if you wanted a certain thing, you had to go to a certain shop in a certain town and, you know, mm. they didn't do mail order or you'd have to wait two months for it to arrive. So I'm looking around for this shop. Can't find it at all. And the first bloke that walks past me, I just flag him down and say, oh, can you help me out and give me directions? And he does. And he's like, fucking, I recognise that voice. Raymond fucking Baxter of Tomorrow's World. Oh, wow. So I got it into my head that London was full of people who wanted casual gay sex in toilets and (laughs) celebrities. And there was nothing in between. So the truth, basically. Hmm. (laughs) Do you still get excited, Al, when you go to London? Just because it's London. Um, I know you worked there for a long time, so it might have lost this excitement for you, but I still get this sense of immensity to it. Yeah. And not I don't just mean the size of kind of the size of London. I mean the size of the structures, the size of the roads, yeah. the size of everything. I still get an immense thrill coming off the M25 and seeing the Shard and seeing the city mm-hmm. and seeing it lit up in the distance. It's still Sin City to me. Yeah. Um, and then you get to Grand Level and you realise, of course, it's all changed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's still exciting in an immense way. Mm. It took me about 20 years to get over not being in London anymore. Because by the time I'd, mm. lived, I'd lived there for about 13 years, and by the end of it, it yeah, was yeah. Just, you know, as they say, tired of London, tired of being fucking ripped off and shat on, <laughs> and having to <laughs> yeah, yeah. sit on a fucking tube for an hour and a half to get anywhere you want to go. Yeah. The thing about London for me now, that's where most of my favourite people in the world live, and mm. it's the place I have to go to to see them. Mm. So yeah. yeah, that's what London is to me. But I mean, at the time, throughout the 80s, I used to go twice a year just down to London to just buy shit. And, mm. you know, I, I end up walking around Soho and going, one day I'm going to be here. And I was in the end. And it was like, yeah, yeah here it is. Here I am. Mm. Big deal. Yeah. I mean, the early 80s, London and Soho would have been such a great place. You know, and it's yeah. just, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. No. Effectively. no. I went around oh, no, Soho the other crap week. nowadays. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's nothing there. It's a bit like Manhattan. It's, 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 you get that feeling about a lot of London is that it's an ex-city in some ways. Yeah. But having said that, I mean, I've lived in London since 1985. So what's that? It's nearly 37 years. Mm. And I do always feel, I've, you know, and it's not a sort of boaster and that, but it has this great claim to be the centre of the world, mm. just in terms of, you know, it's pan-continentalism or whatever. Because, I mean, it, it, America is too solipsistic and inward-looking to be the centre of the world. It's too disconnected from the world. And, and there's nowhere else that really quite compares. Really. And I've always felt like that. Yeah, and if yeah. you move away from London, you're moving away from the centre of the world. You're almost like decreasing in relevance in some ways. The further you move away. I've never been able to move away. I've never had that option. Yeah. I'd love to say spent a year in Berlin or something like that. But I've always been committed to living in London. And I will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Music-wise, I'm still absolutely rinsing the gif, the recent Jam LP. And Mm -hmm. the one and only Jam LP that I actually bought on the day it came out. But I'm still inhaling everything that the charts and the music press and Top of the Pops is throwing at me. I'm I'm, I'm an open-minded child, in a Mm -hmm. way. 
Mm. We're not yet into the years out where you disdain Top of the Pops. No. No, 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 no. If Top of the Pops is on, I'm there. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, Chups, I've spent the day fretting that I'm going to have to watch this episode of Top of the Pops and the West Germany-France game on the black and white portable telly in my bedroom that's got a coat hanger for an aerial, which <laughs> I'm sure you'll agree is absolutely no way to watch such an event. No, no. That World Cup was full of sun and green yes. and blue skies. It was a colourful event. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. and as I say, air horns, just, you know, mm. drenched in air horns. You know, we've got all these digital options nowadays. Yeah. Mm. C- can't we have a- an option when the World Cup's on where you can, you can get air horns and yeah. distorted commentary and, yeah, you, you, and you that, that shine? Filter. Yeah, that's, that, that sounds like it's being kind of, yeah, commentated over, over the phone. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. sort of filter, definitely, to stress the otherness of... European football, absolutely. Mm. We've already established in the past 64 episodes of Chart Music that my dad was the cruel overlord of the living room telly <laughs> and would rather watch old man scat pornography than Top of the Pops. But the other thing that he refused point blank to watch was football. So I'm fucked at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Not interested in sport at all. Right. But the the other thing he was interested in was going to the pub. Right. Luckily for me, we're still a pre-video household. So, mm. you know, he, he can't watch a fucking Bronson film or any of that shit. Mm. So this perfect storm of pop and football hinges upon what's on BBC Two at half past seven. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and bearing in mind that my dad would happily sit through Emmerdale Farm so I couldn't watch Top of the Pops downstairs, uh, I know it's going to have to be something pretty majorly unsuitable to the taste of a 39 year old lorry driver <laughs> to drive him <laughs> off to the pub early. So, you know, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll leave you on that cliffhanger for now. Yeah, I'm on tenter hooks. My mum goes to the bingo on Thursday night, so she's out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. And hmm. um, my sister can fuck off. <laughs> she can go out and talk to some lads from the other estate or something. Mm. You mm. know, this is a, a battle of wills yeah, between yeah. the master and the pupil. <laughs> so, pop craze youngsters, we arrive at the part of the episode where we retire to the chart music crap room, rip open a load of boxers, and pull out an issue of the music press from this week. And this time, we present to you the July 10th edition of the Accordion Times and New Musical Express. Shall we leave through, chaps? Yeah. On the cover, Banana Armor again. Fucking hell, enemy, they like the banana armor, didn't they? Mm. In the news, the gig news is coming thick and fast this week. And the top story is the return of David Bowie to a British stage for the first time since a three-night stand at Earl's Court in the summer of 1978. He's been lined up for a 20-minute slot at the Princess Trust Rock Gala at the Dominion Theatre with Madness as the headliners. But don't bother trying to get a £50 ticket if you're not involved with the Princess Trust as it's invitation only. And in any case, he pulls out a week or so later and is eventually replaced by Gary Brooker. (laughs) Yeah. What's David Bowie doing grovelling around Prince Charles? Yeah. Like yeah. did pull out. The other big comeback after 18 months in activity, the Associates, who will be playing three nights at the George Square Assembly in mid-August as part of the Edinburgh Festival, after which they'll be playing Glasgow Ultratech, the Hacienda, and two nights in London. They're also about to release their 12th single and the follow-up to Club Country at the end of the month, 18 Carat Love Affair. 
But the jams mooted open air gig at Loftus Road, the home of Queen's Park Rangers, is officially off. Plans are afoot to find an alternative venue, but the band's management acknowledge that it's getting very late in the day to sort out a gig while the weather's still not shit and it sadly never comes off. Killing Joke are officially back from the dead and an active unit again after their drummer Big Paul has scrapped plans to form a new band a week after he announced it and has pegged it over to Iceland to reunite with Jazz Coleman and Geordie Walker. They've also unveiled a new bassist known as Mr Raven, the unfortunately titled Paul Raven, who the enemy reports is a capable musician and deranged. (laughs) They've immediately announced a two-month tour of North America beginning next week and will be playing here in the autumn. Topper Hedden, the ex-drummer of The Clash, has been bailed and sent for trial on a charge of nicking a London transport bus stop worth £30. <laughs> Theatre of Hate is a man down after the departure of their guitarist Billy Duffer in an amicable split. There was a clash of styles, says Theatre of Hate's manager, Terry Razor. <laughs> I think Billy was more interested in a straighter rock and roll thing. Duffy, of course, eventually goes on to link up with Wolfchild and form the cult. Elena Lovich announces her return as the co-writer, costume designer and star of the musical Matahare, which will begin a four-week run at the Lyric Hammersmith Studio Theatre in October. Some things falling into place there, isn't it? Killing joke, Mm. solidifying. I mean, why would you announce a new band? before you've actually got it sorted. Yeah. But Raven, I mean, he, he ends up in ministry and revolting cocks and things like this. So um, he's, he's quite an important figure later. Uh, it's weird. I say that I would have bought this issue and I don't recall. Everything that you've mentioned so far I would have zoned out. <laughs> I bet you probably remember the reviews and stuff more. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think Paul Morley wrote a big thing about Killing Joke at one point around this period. And he says, oh, and I've been told by the editor that Killing Joke had got a new basis. No one in the world wants to know this, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was my attitude as well. In the interview section, well, Mark Ullman gives us a guided tour of the nightclub scene in Leeds, starting with his old workplace, The Warehouse, oh, where he yeah. wrote the first ever soft cell songs in the cloakroom. He tells us that glam rock is making a comeback there and fits in perfectly with the all-encompassing playlist at The Warehouse. He also tells us that Le Phonographique has become more adventurous and on good nights feels like a party in a living room, but points out that the Bally High across the road is a poor imitation, while noting oh, that was. Primo's on the top floor of Belinda's Club has started one of those video techs that David Van Day and Therese Bazaar keep going on about. <laughs> oh, David, you could have written this. Yeah, oh, I used to go to the warehouse and the Bally High, and it is, it is right to kind of have a low opinion of uh, that particular place it was a bit Yates's mm. wine lodge really <laughs> yeah but yeah, yeah the warehouse yes yeah, so all kinds of people there yeah Cabri Voltaire certain ratio that lot yeah did you ever hand in your coat to Mark Ullman I didn't no no um, uh. I was probably just a little bit um, too young yeah for that to have happened oh yeah. I mean it's a great place a warehouse as long as you didn't want to go to the toilet because the toilets are very intimidating really mm. <laughs> yeah especially if you don't like being looked at as you urinate oh really <laughs> well I mean just not, not, not people were sort of like you know going out of the way to do that particularly it's just there's a lot of people in there just like a little bit oh right 
bit of peace and quiet and solitude. Perhaps a cubicle to myself, ideally. <laughs> what, right in where people ought to stand with the Yorkshire Post under their arm if they want a blowjob? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Lloyd Bradley, fretting that the post-Marley reggae scene is disappearing up its own arse, links up with a duo that he believes has the best chance of stopping the rot, Sly and Robbie, who were in town last week playing with Black Uhuru at the Stones' Wembley gigs. They put the blame on artists and producers who only want to sell enough records at home to buy a new car and will only bother to put out new products when they want a new car, (laughs) as well as musicians who immediately graduate to studio work without learning their chops on the road, playing all sorts of music. They really like the British variant of reggae that's knocking about at the moment, but it never gets released in Jamaica for fear it'll put all manner of noses out of joint. And in any case, they're happy being the rhythm section, not the front persons. Bradley ends the piece by gloomily conceding that the work that Marley put into establishing reggae as a bona fide popular music is steadily being wiped out as reggae music climbs backwards further into the hills of Jamaica lost forever. Hmm. Lynn Hanna travels to Hamburg with Bananarama, who are doing the top and pop and circuit and discharging their final duties with the Fun Boy 3. She finds a trio of young British women who stick out like a sore thumb amongst the other ladies on the programme who are go-go dancing with their tits out. (laughs) We learn they're grateful to the fun boys for giving them a new sense of direction and showing them that it doesn't matter that they don't play instruments. They find it hilarious that the Daily Mail said they were putting the glamour back into rock and that the vast majority of their fan mail comes from girls who want to look like them. Mm. Bow wow wow currently plying their ways on the American market and, according to Adrian Thrills, there's a gaping hole in our charts and hearts about to be filled by the tough and tantalising new pop narcotic of Hazy Fantasia, who have just put out John Wayne's Big Legger. Jeremiah Healer, who claims that he was expelled from a voodoo cult in South London a few years ago after they accused him of being the Antichrist, gives us tips on how to get your dreadlocks hanging just so, (laughs) while we learn that Kate Garner comes from Wigan and is keen to let us know that they're not going to be another Bucks Fizz or Dollar. (laughs) Oh, and they'll be going for a skiffle feel in their next single. God. That worked out for him. <laughs> and Amrick Rye makes a pilgrimage to the top of the pop studio to interview the man of the moment, Captain Sensible. After noting that the studio looks like Victoria Coke Station in the middle of a train strike, John Peel is referred to by Michael Hurl as John Darling, and Visage have a coughing fit on the dry ice in their dress rehearsal. He finds Sensible in a belligerent mood. He wishes that his current success was as a member of The Damned than a solo affair, and is insistent that now that Dave Vanian can actually sing, The Damned are more important and relevant now than they were in 1976. When asked about how he's changed since then, he says, I'm not sure. I tend to despair a lot more for my country. This is probably the worst period in world history, and you can't ignore something like that. Happy talk. Mm. Wait another 40 years, mate. Yep. Oh, my dear. (laughs) Single reviews. At the controls this week is Adrian Thrills, and his single of the week by a country mile is Don't Go by Yazoo. 
No contest. The Ike and Tina Turner of the new pop return with a slice of soul melodrama that knocks the rest of this week's releases into a cocked hat in terms of impact and intensity. There was a time when we pop snobs used to muse, more in hope than desperation, that singles like this deserve to be big hits. These days, it is a foregone conclusion that the likes of Yuzu will chart, so instead we say that Don't Go deserves to be a number one. It might just turn out to be the first great single of the summer, and about time too. Oh, I bet you agree with that, eh, David? I certainly did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm just wondering this I can Tina Turner comparison. Yes. Mm. It's appropriateness. <laughs> I mean, the mm. thing is, I mean, was it known in 82 what a horrible piece of work Ike had been to Tina? Or was that not yet revealed? I, yeah, I, I think probably so. Tina Turner, I think, was just pretty much off the radar because when the British Electronic Foundation, um, BEF or whatever it was, um, mm. yeah, it, she was just, yeah, living very modestly. You know, they went round to her little house and, uh, yeah, she, she'd completely dropped off the uh, radar mm. at this point. It all came out in, I want to say, 1986 when her autobiography came out and the subsequent film. Yeah. Mm. I think she just started doing more interviews, didn't she, when she went solo, went fully solo and started getting hits and then it all came out. So, yeah. It's an incredibly meaty thumbs up for The Devil Lives in My Husband's Body, the debut single by Pulse Llama. Ten Timbala toting women with names like Jean Caffeine, Wendy Wilde, Bubbles Montana, April Palmiore and Bonefinder Thomas. Pulse Alarma are the most exotic band to burst into bloom south of East 96th Street in the past 12 months. Sure, they're not totally serious, although behind their smiles there looks the surly snarl of the Big Apple's belated but brusque answer to Banana Rama. That's a fucking tune, that is. I can't understand how that wasn't a hit over here. Have you heard it? I've not heard it. No. Imagine if the Slits were a Calypso band. Mm. (laughs) I've got to hear this. Kid Creole and the Coconuts have finally broken through in the UK charts and Thrills reckons their latest release, Stool Pigeon, is going to decide whether they're here to stay or not. One of the few truly memorable moments on a disappointing LP and a much better single than the flat, flimsy, wonderful thing, says Thrills. Another hit? Hard to say. There haven't been that many successful singles about supergrasses, and for such a leisurely stroll of a song, the arrangement is needlessly fussy and drawn out. The single, like most of Tropical Gangsters, also suffers from the low profile adopted of Cody Munde, the undoubted star of the live show, over here. Another banger. Yeah. Oh, total banger. Leisurely stroll of a song. I know. Yeah. Nonsense. I think maybe we'll probably get a little bit spoiled at this time, you know, if you can be that blasé about Kid Creel and a coconut. Yeah, yeah. But it's a coat down for the clapping song by the Bell Stars. Although their effort was the more listenable, the Bell Stars were pipped to the purse strings of Top of the Pops by Natasha's update of Ico Ico last month. Undaunted, they now return with yet another cover version, doing their bit to ensure that a tediously regressive trend continues, the dredging up of old material to appease conservative radio controllers. The Bell Stars have more than enough class and character of their own to be able to do without this sort of desperate dishonesty. <laughs> talk Talk have had two flop singles in a row. 
with Talk Talk only getting to number 52 a couple of months ago. And Thrills gives them an even chance to break the curse with their new single, Today. A change of heart from heavy-handed tub-thumping to a more airy, almost secular feel. As a result, they at least sound a little less like a surrogate Duran Duran and more like themselves. Wispy synthy pop meets candy floss psychedelia. Mm. King Trigger! The first new British group to be signed to Chrysalis Records in Spandau Bali nearly two years ago have put out their debut single, The River, but Thrills doesn't reckon it. They obviously want to be Bow Wow Wow, although Steve Lillywhite's production has left them stranded closer to the skids, all bristling drum rolls and serrated guitar. What sort of fire will they begin to breathe once they find themselves a song worth getting really worked up about? Hmm. Again, that should have been a fucking hit. Again, I've not heard it. The sound of the street last summer, the bleep of the Casio calculator, provides the rhythm track to this, the most painfully twee excess doses of the Germanic electro dream since Andreas Daral's Fred von Jupiter says thrills of da 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 by trio you may have caught five seconds of this on one of those excruciating euro joints on top of the pops a few weeks ago in which case you like me will be trembling at the pretty real prospect that the thing will actually be a hit (laughs) hanging garden by the cure is a dismal exercise in rolling tumbling textures the cure have drifted disappointingly and indulgently from the idyllic pop invention of their younger days Girls Got to Know by Aswad gets coated down for having a go at women who are only trying to make themselves look nice. I Wish I Could Be Me by Honey Bane is Toya without the histrionics. And War Child by Blondair is more mild metal than the usual fake funk coy joy. Like all the other singles milked from the hunter, they're the final poisoned arrows in the throat of a once great singles band. But then again, who needs Blondie when you've got ABC, Adam, Altered Images and Yazoo? Mm. He has a point. Yeah. Well, it's true, really. Mm. Meanwhile, there's so much stuff coming out of New York at the moment that a separate review section has been set up, handled by Richard Grable, and he tells us to get ready for Planet Rock by Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force. This is becoming the theme song of the summer street. Some records just come along at the right time and embody a moment, and this is one of them. If it hadn't been for the fact that WBLS started opening its playlist to the new electro-pop, allowing Kraftwerk, Soft Cell and the Human League to be heard and accepted in parks and schoolyards from Washington Square to Pelham Bay, this record would never have been made. A breakthrough record. Too right. It is too Fucking hell, what a singles page that is. Mm. That Richard Grable page, I remember that section because I used to go out and spend a fiver a go on. On, on imports that uh, on his recommendation, Ooh. and that's when I was living on about a fiver a week. <laughs> Man, how, how many of them records could you got with just a bit of smack, David? <laughs> <you> idiot. <laughs> 
In the LP review section, well, the prime slot this week belongs to Junkyard, the third LP by the birthday party, and Richard Cook reckons they're not up to it, lacking the campness of Bauhaus and the sarcasm of the fall, and it's shot through with religious rammel. The birthday party is like an ongoing cannibalistic domestic feud, writes Cook. A strangely literate atmosphere of Victorian melodrama pervades. The birthday party's tracks dwell in a gallery, haunted by the rancid horrors of Mish Havisham and Les Miserables. Mm. Venture inside, take in the exhibits and leave by the back. Door. I never thought that the birthday party's problem was that they were insufficiently Bauhaus-like. <laughs> Some extraordinary things have been happening in popular African music in recent years and are only now making their way to Western ears, says Neil Spencer, as he opens his review of Juju Music by King Sonny A Day, yeah. which he reckons is skill. Mm. It's a compelling voyage down dark, sinuous currents of rhythm, a jangle of melodic colour clamouring up above, with periods of lilting, almost placid vocal delicacy and plunging instrumental rapids. Take a dive into juju music. It's magic, he writes, putting his thumbs up like Selwyn Froggett, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Hell and the Voidoids have finally got round to putting out their second LP, Destiny Street, five years after Blank Generation, and Richard Grable chalks it up as an interesting failure. Even before you realise how standard, regular and old the songs are, even before the blazing guitars and lagging, dragging shuffles start to really bore you, the first thing that really scares you is the voice. It's choked up and despairing, infested with self-pity. It sounds like a death rattle. Hell, for all his professions of hope, sounds sad and lost. A wasted talent in both senses of the word. Mm. Nina Hagen has moved to Los Angeles and signed to CBS, and her first English-language LP, Nonsense Monk Rock, has been lobbed over to Mark Cordere, who reports that she's turned into a Teutonic Cape Bush. Perhaps in years to come, this mild blend of mirth-making voodoo iconography will constitute a camp classic. Who knows? Message from the future, Mark. No, it isn't. (laughs) In the gig guide. Well, David could have seen Samson at the marquee, Sylvain Sylvain at the Hope and Anchor, the flying pickets at the venue in Victoria, Mm. the clash at the Brixton Fair Deal, Lords of the New Church at the Hernhill Half Moon, the birthday party, Sisters of Mercy and Play School at the Zigzag Club, Howard Jones at the Hammersmith Clarendon Hotel, the Foreskins and Combate, at the Blue Coat Boy in Islington or Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club at Wembley Arena. Oh, David, spoilt for choice. Yeah. Taylor could have seen Magnum at the Whip Club, Willie and the Poor Boys at the Barrel Organ, Handsome Beasts at the Mercat Cross, or several young men ignite and hardboard stump at the Star Club. Oh, not very good for Birmingham this week. Mm. <laughs> Neil could have seen Evil Wind at the General Wolf. <laughs> Or Marillion at Busters. Ah, you see, I could have invited Taylor over to carve. 
Because he loves yeah. his alien, does Taylor, doesn't he? Yeah, he was well into him at the time, <laughs> wasn't he? He was, he was. <laughs> Sarah could have seen Blamange at the Leeds Warehouse, New Model Army at the Keithley Funhouse, or the really big boys at Leeds Royal Park Hotel. Don't know what they're about. Mm. Don't want to speculate, to be honest. <laughs> Al could have seen Incognito at the Palais, Saracen at Javago's, Joe Jackson at Rock City, or nipped out to Derbyshire to see Liquid Gold for a week-long residency at Chesterfield Aquarius. <laughs> Chesterfield Aquarius? Mm. <laughs> when the moon is in the seventh house. <laughs> and Simon could have seen Samson, Bernie Marsden's SOS, and Angel Witch at Cardiff top rank and fuck all else because music agitates the privy parts and encourages the youth of Wales to steal flowers. In the letters page... Well, Paul DeNoyer is entrusted with Gasbag this week and immediately has to start defending his colleagues who have offended the readership this past month. I can't imagine that any of the NME writers would refer to blacks as N-words or to Jews as Y-words, writes Vincent Holmolka of Bristol. However, referring homosexuals as F-words, as Danny Baker did in his singles column, is apparently okay. Contemptible. He goes even further, counters Denoya. He calls pubs boozers a pound note a quid and ciggies are F-words as well. Phew, it doesn't do to be sensitive when that baker boy's around, mm. nor pathetically paranoiac. Yeah. Different times. Different yeah. times. Yeah. The Rolling Stones have recently swung by the UK as part of their European tour, and Barney Hoskins, in a review where he pretended to be an alien observing a weird and confusing rite of worship, reckoned that they looked like five mangy and middle-aged characters and their new stuff was rammel. The readership was not impressed. <laughs> to old man Barney Toskins. <laughs> Did you write your review of the Stones before actually going? The review was unfunny and at times inaccurate. I expect you were listening to the gift on your Walkman, says Margaret Trudeau of Battersea. (laughs) The Stones are to rock what Coronation Street is to Ian Penman and two million other grannies. Both have been going for at least 20 years and neither look like stopping. In 20 years' time, Strummer, Weller, Brandon and others will long be forgotten by your paper. Yet few weeks have passed this year without a reference to at least one of the stones. This is 20 years on Blarney. You're not blind to reason, just pig-headed. Blarney Toskins, that's that's not bad. It's it's not as good as Neil Kumsane. No, it's it's not quite at those heights, but it's good. It's good. But it's not all bad news, as the Midnight Rambler of Earl's Court points out. To the guy at Turnstile F at Wembley Stadium, who admitted me free, one minute into the stone set. I don't know who you are, my friend, and I probably never will. But being unemployed, I was most reluctant to give Michael and co ten quid. So when, to my absolute delight and disbelief, you told me to run on through, I started to believe in miracles. 
May the bird of paradise fly up your nose, and here's looking at you, kid. Oh, bless. Ten quid to see the stones. <laughs> he paid for call. <laughs> this time you have gone too far, gasped Stephen Jones of Colchester. Your live section from the June 26th edition contained reviews of the following artists. Alan Eager, The Big Combo, Designed for Living, Gorp, Cherry Boys, and The Perfect Crime. I am not criticising your coverage of these groups, but if you cover these famous celebrities, you should also cover the real stars. You seem to have forgotten that 72,000 people went and watched Simon and Garfunkel perform brilliantly at Wembley. How, you ignorant morons, can decide that Simon and Garfunkel are not worth reviewing is beyond me. To be quite honest, you make me sick. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez Louise. Regarding your interview with Iron Maiden, we, as three Lady Rock fans, are appalled by the comments made by Steve Harris and Bruce Dickinson mentioning that they were not aware of females in the audience. Right, three invisible maidens of Cornwall. It is obvious that they are still in the Stone Age and have been giving autographs and too much attention to men only. And the reason for this is that females alone at a rock concert are classed as groupies. We would love to meet groups in person, but we don't want to put over the wrong impression. Gerpen B. Lash of Abu Dhabi moans about British artists knocking about in Germany and Japan just because Bowie has. X of Fitzroy, Australia, complains that the new chrome cassette LPs being released by record labels are going to shag up the tape head of his car stereo. ADB Burr is upset that the casing of the new Jethro Tull and Toya cassette LPs don't fit his shelf. And why Yang of Blackheath is spitting feathers at the enemy's negative review of this year's Glastonbury when it raised 50 grand for CND the drugs were skill and you could get a vegetable curry for 60p oh you see what a time to be alive <laughs> exactly yeah all that nonsense about the worst time in human history <laughs> yeah 48 pages 30p I never knew there was so much in it a good issue and, and yeah a very good issue you know and those letters you've just read out I think there's a kind of feedback loop that happens with the music press, whereby if Mm. the writing in it, you know, the features, the interviews, the reviews are literate and well-written, the letters are as well, to a certain extent. By the time I was editing the letters page, especially towards the (laughs) tail end of things, tail end of the 90s, the letters were dog shit. You know, they, they, they were just semi-articulate. But, you know, just look at the language that's used in some of those reviews and, and, mm. and singles reviews that you read out. You know, y- yeah. you wouldn't find a review, I don't know, these days that uses words like secular or cannibalistic or aggressive or rancid or any of those things. But, mm. you know, if you're writing into a music paper and it's it's literate like that and it uses words mm. well, you're going to up your game, in a sense, writing that letter in. Yeah. And, and mm. later on, that all falls apart when, you know, if the copy's shit, the letters are going to be shit as well yeah Craig David sucks lol yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean <laughs> perhaps a lot of people that you know write in you know write letters into the music press they are perhaps sort of saying can I have a job please yeah yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know yeah. they feel like they've got to measure up you know some not all but uh, I don't think the Simon and Garfunkel correspondent falls under <laughs> that category <laughs> you know by the end of Melody Maker Neil mm-hmm. did you ever have to make up letters no I never did actually um, I but, made them up oh. all the time 
Yeah. It depends how bored you got, I Sorry, think. David, you said you did. Yeah, all the time. I, I did the letters. No! Yeah, you know, eight or nine weeks uh, consecutively, and I just made the whole thing up. <laughs> no! <laughs> like, David, every single letter, or just like... Every single letter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think it kind of began to sort of tell a little bit, you know. Mm. But, uh, yeah, hell. you know, because it was just getting... It was just pretty thin, really, you know. The letters, yeah, yeah. You know, the letters come to that point. When I was working on video game magazines, the first three issues or so, I was handling the letters page. And mm. obviously, issue one, we just nicked them off other magazines on our stable. Mm. But by two and three, it was like, oh, these are all dog shit. I'm going to write them myself. Mm. My favourite letter that I wrote myself was uh, I wanted a version of Mortal Kombat with soap opera characters <laughs> so you could set fire to Ian Beale and mm. rip his heart out and show it to him before he died. <laughs> I just do little things like I'd have a letter from somebody sort of saying, um, you cover a lot of like decent indie and all that kind of stuff, but I notice that you don't really give much coverage to um, Arbroath. You know, there's a really good vibrant <laughs> scene happening in Arbroath, and I think we should hear a lot more of it. And then it'd be signed by, I don't know, M. Irvin, Doncaster. And then the next letter would be sort of completely saying the same thing. But, you know, the, the whole Doncaster music scene, you're just completely overlooking it. So come on, let's hear a bit more about the Doncaster music scene. And that'd be from S. Johnson from Arbroath, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, little stuff like that. So what's on telly tonight? Well, BBC One kicks off at 6.40am for an hour and a quarter of red-hot open university action featuring analysing interaction, bought for manufacture and steel castings. I think you saw them once, didn't you, David? Oh, steel castings. What a bill that was. (laughs) They then shut down for three hours. Then, at 5 to 11, they whip us over to the Oval for the first day of the third test against India. After the news and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of the first ever episode of Mr. Ben, where he becomes the Red Knight and helps a dragon who's been laid off by the advent of matches. Then it's Pobla Cum, regional news in your area and play school, and then we're dropped into the new camp in Barcelona for live coverage of the first World Cup semi-final between Poland and Italy. After Paolo Rossi has dealt with the plucky polls, it's the news nationwide and another chance to see the highlights from the last game and have a bit of a froth over the next semi-final with David Coleman, Laurie McMenemy and Bobby Charlton in World Cup Report. BBC Two also starts at 6.40 with a hardcore open university bum rush with flavours and fragrances, <laughs> children's television and semiconductors in the sun and then shuts down for two and a half hours, springing back to life for play school with Chloe Ashcroft and then shutting down for another two hours and 40 minutes. At 25 to 2, it's the afternoon session of the Test Match, followed by the 1930 short film, The Laurel and Hardy Murder Case. Yes. Then it's the chat show 655 Special, where Sally James and her special guest co-host David Soul invite established stars and newcomers to contribute to a lively half hour of music and conversation, it says here in Radio Times, <laughs> followed by a new summary. They've just started the 1968 musical comedy Funny Girl starring Barbara Streisand. Yes! <laughs> yes! Two and a half hours of the bastard. Ooh. Fucking yes! So are you watching it, Dad? 
Because you love musical theatre, don't you, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> you know who else likes Barbara Streisand, don't you, Dad? <laughs> Bent cunts who aren't fucking yeah. real. <laughs> oh, you're going to the pub, are you? See ya. <laughs> Although, having said that, I would kill to spend an evening watching Barbara Streisand with my dad nowadays. <laughs> oh, just a look on his face. Mm. <laughs> ITV gets the party started at half past nine with the cartoon Barney, Google and Snuffy Smith followed by a chance to see the uninhabited bits of Colorado in the wildlife series Wilderness Alive After history of the Grand Prix looks at Jackie Stewart's championship season of 1971 we drop in on some refugee families from Vietnam starting a new life in America as farmers in a big country then it's a repeat of Paint Along with Nancy, Gammon and Spinach, Get Up and Go, and The Sullivans. After the news and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of Emmerdale Farm. Then here today, whatever that is, then it's an hour and a half of racing from Newmarket. That's followed by In Loving Memory the sitcom that puts the fun in funeral. Then the 1934 Laurel and Hardy film, March of the Wooden Soldiers. Fucking hell, so much Laurel oh, and Hardy, David. yeah, yeah. I think there'd been a uh, disagreement. They were taken off for a, a couple of years. There was some um, dispute with a German production company or something like that, yeah. So I think really? that's been resolved by now. Or perhaps it was about to happen. Anyway, yeah, yeah you're in Laurel and Hardy heaven. After the news at 5.45, it's regional news in your area. Then a repeat of Give Us a Clue where Eunice Stubbs and Lionel Blair are joined by Melvin Hayes, Windsor Davis, Maureen Lipman, Susan Stranks, Barbara Windsor and Mick McManus. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. McManus. <laughs> Benny Hawkins continues his quest to buy a house for Miss Luke in Crossroads and they've just started the build-up for tonight's World Cup semi-final between West Germany and France. What a fucking banquet. Mm. That semi, man. Mm, That that semi gives me a semi, just thinking about it now. (laughs) So what's jumping out of you there on those listings? It's it's Easter holiday time. It is. And they're just bunging on any old shit for the youth. Any old shit. Oddly enough, Laurie McMenem is leaping out of me as a name um, Mm. from my youth. And, but obviously, you know, long yeah. story football career, but all I can remember is fucking Barbican. Yes, it's great, man. It's great, man. Um, and also, the Open University thing you mentioned, I have to say, mm. later on in the 80s, Open University programmes became a hotbed for musical experimentalism. Did they really? Oh, yeah, indeed. As a melody maker reader, I was obviously avidly hoovering up everything that David and Simon Reynolds and various other people were telling me about every week. And I remember mm. putting on one, one, I think it was about industrial welding or something, um, yeah. and it being accompanied by the soundtrack of uh, The Young Gods and Spaceman 3 really? and Loop. Yeah, it was Excellent. really odd. And I, honestly, I didn't dream and I wasn't tripping. Somebody at Open University obviously loved all of that shit as well yeah. and uh, mm. started soundtracking kind of really odd industrial-like films with the cutting edge of, um, yeah, Melody Maker style music god i wish i'd known that at the time yeah you'd be learning about you know arc lights and uh, your ass would literally be quaking yes yeah <laughs> well chaps i do believe that we've filled in the wall chart on this preamble if you will and we've set the stage for this episode of top of the pops that we're about to tear into so i think we should leave it there and come back tomorrow and set about it properly don't yeah, you think? that sounds like a capital notion so in that case then tar very much david stubbs and thank you god bless you neil kulkarna thanks al my name's al needham and i command you to stay 
pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.